Would you please stand for the reading of the word? Galatians 5, starting with verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thank you, Anne. For freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. That's how Galatians 5 begins. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Um, We have this amazing freedom in Christ. And it's interesting because that's not how the Christian faith often gets portrayed these days. Right or wrong, um, a lot of times um, the, the Christian faith gets portrayed as being repressive, as having too many rules and regulations Um, restrictions on our lives, but that's not how Paul presents it. Paul presents the Christian life as a life of freedom. And so what we're going to be talking about really over the next two to three weeks is um, what does he mean that we have freedom in Christ? What does that look like? And, uh, you know, next week we're going to spend a lot more time looking at what it positively looks like. This week we're going to look at the negative side of that. What does freedom in Christ not look like? Because I think that's really important for us to get right, and uh, it's, a, it's a really important topic for us. And so as we dive in here, there's a lot here. Um, I, I want to go to the Lord in prayer one more time before we begin. Father, this is your word, and Lord, I want to represent it well, Lord. I want to, to preach your word in a way that is accurately representing Paul's intention, and more importantly, your intention in these words. And God, these are heavy words here. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts, even right now, would be open to hearing from you. And Lord, if there is an area, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, may we be receptive. Um, May we not turn a deaf ear to what your Spirit would have us hear this morning. And so we pray, Lord, that you would um, 
guide both the, my teaching and, and the listening and the receiving of your word, Lord, this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what is freedom talking about? What is he talking about when he says freedom? Is this freedom in Christ, this freedom that we have, is this a freedom to do whatever I want, anything at all? Um, am I, in, in essence, my own master now that I am free? Is that what's being described here? Is it an absolute sort of freedom, totally free in every sense, or is it more specific than that? So I want to give, give an analogy here that I want to paint a picture for you. Um, one of my favorite comic strips is Calvin and Hobbes. How many Calvin and Hobbes fans do I any? Okay, a few. Okay, so we've got a few Calvin and Hobbes fans here. So um, I, I love Calvin and Hobbes. I have several of those compilation books at home. Uh, every once in a while, I'll get them out and, and laugh until I can't breathe anymore. Um, I, I love Calvin and Hobbes, but one of my favorite comic strips um, is when he came up with Calvin Ball. So, so you know, it's Calvin and his, his stuffed animal tiger, Hobbes, and, and it's all of his adventures you know, where Hobbes, he's pretending is alive, you know, and so they're, they're playing games together and doing all kinds of things. Well, he invents Calvin Ball, and the only rule in Calvin Ball is that you can't use the same rule twice, <laughs> which, which means it's just total chaos, you know. So you run this way. No, this time you have to hop on one foot. No, this time, I, you know, I yelled whatever, and it's just really funny. So um, my question is, is, you know, is that how the Christian faith works? Is it like Calvin Ball, right? We've been released from all rules, and we can do anything we want to. Absolute, total freedom. In real life, if you played games that way, they would be terrible, okay? So imagine baseball, where you hit the ball, and then you can do whatever you want to. <laughs> you can run to the right. You can run to the left. You could go back and get a hot dog. You can sit down on home base. Imagine baseball, if all the rules get thrown out, it just doesn't work. Or imagine chess, if there's no rules. <laughs> you can just, like, knock off people's players if you don't like them there. Or it, it just it immediately is no longer fun. There's no game involved. Or imagine driving with no rules. I, I can't think of a single person I've ever met that would think, that's a good idea, you know? Um, I, I'm very glad that we've all agreed upon which side of the road to, to drive on. So, so there is a sense in which absolute freedom, total freedom, is a really bad idea. So what is he talking about when he says freedom in Christ? So let's take a look at this. So Galatians 5, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So his definition of freedom might be different than what we're initially thinking. So when he says that we are free in Christ, he tells us there are some things that are out of bounds. Okay, so don't, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And then he defines freedom in a really weird way. You were called to freedom through love, serve one another. Your expression of freedom is serving. It's the same word for slavery, right? So in, in, in the Bible, we get a really good picture of what this looks like 
back in Exodus. So you remember the, the nation of Israel is coming out of Egypt. And listen to what Exodus 9 says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. So it's just fascinating. So the way the Bible, and it consistently does this, the way the Bible consistently portrays freedom is that we have a new master. So we're no longer under the old slave master, Pharaoh. Now we're serving the new, new slave master who is God, right? Pharaoh was a terrible taskmaster. He was awful. God is a good master. It is good to serve the Lord. That, that's how the freedom is being portrayed. Um, we were under the old slave master of the law, is what Paul's been saying throughout Galatians. Now we're under a new master who is Christ, who is good. So let's take a look at a few other passages in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So you're free to serve the Lord. Or look at Romans 6. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Isn't that fascinating how freedom in Christ gets portrayed? It's a different master. It's a different service. But it's not an absolute kind of freedom like I get to be my own master and I get to do whatever I want. So um, what he's saying, what Paul's been building this case the whole way through Galatians. If you've been here with us, you know uh, he's saying that we are freed from the Old Testament law. We're no longer bound by the Old Testament law to keep all of those rules and restrictions, to try to live up to a perfect righteousness in God through those laws. But here's my question. Doesn't that just mean we're playing Calvin ball? If we get rid of all the rules, aren't we just making up all our own rules then? Aren't we just doing our own thing? And so listen to how Paul works through that, because that's really what he's addressing here, is he's getting to the heart of this question of, if we don't have the law, does that mean we just go do whatever we want to? We can just sin and we can do whatever. And so he's saying, no, that's not the case. And so he begins here in verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. As I mentioned, there are some things that are out of bounds, Right? We're not supposed to live that way. Uh, and, and I think this is, really, this is where it's really relevant for us. So we're Americans, which means we like freedom. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I'm, I'm free. It's the land of the free, the home of the brave, right? So we're free. But that freedom in recent days has been taken to some extremes where people now think, you know, I have total moral freedom to do whatever I want to. As long as there's consent, you know, as long as I'm not stepping on someone else's toes, I should be morally free to do whatever I want to do. And what Paul's saying is that's not freedom. What Paul's going to show actually is that that's a different kind of slavery. That's, that's not freedom at all. And so take a look at verse 16 here, 16 and 17. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the real question, he's giving you two options here. And the real question is, who is the master controlling your actions? And so he's already said, you're free from the law. And so we might assume that if you're free from the law, then I guess you're your own master. But that's not the case. He says there's two options left. So if you're not slave to the law, you could be slave to your own desires, or you could be serving the Spirit. Those are our options. So when he says the desires of the flesh, right? Paul uses this language, the flesh. What is he talking about here with the flesh? It's probably more than just your physical body. It's also the things that the impulse is driven by your physical body. So it's our, our tendency to rely on our own abilities instead of God. I can do it on my own, that kind of a, an impulse. Uh, it's human pride, trusting yourself, self-indulgence, all of that stuff, fallen human nature, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, sinful pride of life, all of that, Paul wraps up with this word, the flesh. And he says, this is one option, is pursuing the flesh. And he's going to describe what that looks like. The other option is the spirit, serving the spirit. Now, just heads up, I'm going to spend this week talking about the flesh. Next week, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay, and we're going to come back to this exact same passage. We're going to look at it further um, with the Holy Spirit. And just spoiler alert, the Holy Spirit is the key to the Christian life. And so if, if you come away from this message feeling like, but there was more, but he left out. Yeah, I did. That's, that's true. So um, what Paul shows us is that there is no overlap between the Spirit and the flesh. These are opposed to each other. They're fighting against each other. There is a battle going on inside of us between our own sinful desires and the Holy Spirit within us. And they're opposed to each other, and it's, it's just so fascinating. He says, they keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, so here's the fascinating thing about the Christian life, is if you choose to serve the flesh and run after your sinful desires, it's going to leave you completely unsatisfied. That's the crazy thing about the Christian life. Because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, giving us an actual desire to want to live for the Lord, to serve Him. And if instead we pursue sin, we are ultimately not doing what we want to do. There, there is an internal conflict, a, a dissatisfaction that, that's there when we serve the flesh. And maybe you guys have experienced that. Um, but it's more than that. Paul says it's more than just you're not satisfied. Paul actually says in a number of places that this will lead to slavery, to a bondage. So consider Romans 6.12. He says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He uses language of obedience, of obeying its passions. And then verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone, As obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. 
And so there's a slavery that comes when we choose to follow after sin. It, it enslaves us because we've given it the right to. We've, we've allowed it to have that control in our lives. And so, so freedom in Christ does not mean freedom to pursue our own desires. That, that's the point I'm trying to make here is, is there is a, a war within us. And often we are our own worst enemies in this. You know, we, we talk about the, the spiritual life as a battle. And we battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And usually I think we blame, put all the blame on the devil and on the world. And we don't recognize that a lot of the blame ought to be put on our own flesh. Like, we're our own worst enemy. We, can, we, we don't even need the devil to mess up. We can do it all on our own. Um, James 4.1 says... What causes the quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's a war going on inside of us, and our desires are leading us to terrible things. Um, Look again. He says, Galatians 5.13, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Why? Why should we not let our... Freedom be used as an opportunity for the flesh? Well, because there's this war going on, and if you allow the flesh control, it's not good. It's waging war against you. So 1 Peter 2.11 says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So now, it's interesting, because we might think, you know, the, the passions of the flesh, these desires, this war, this battle going on, it could lead to bad things for the people around us. It could be consequences for them. But he says this is a battle against your own soul. And so I just want to show you um, in this passage here in Galatians 5, he talks about the evidence of the flesh, and then he talks about the consequences of that, the consequences of living by the flesh. So first, verse 19 here. Verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. You don't have to look far. This is, this is really obvious. It's clear. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's fascinating as we look at that list. I don't know if you guys are like this, but I think often the tendency is to look at a list like that and look for the worst things on the list so that we can excuse ourselves, right? So I look at the list, and I'm like, wow, idolatry and sorcery? Yeah, I don't do that stuff. Drunkenness? Yeah, I don't, I don't do drunkenness. So I guess I'm okay. I'm good. <laughs> I'm all right. I don't do those things. But, you know, the the list also includes things like jealousy and rivalries and envy and some more subtle heart-type things. And those are on the list, too. And those are things that that cause terrible harm to a community. Those are things that tear people apart from one another. And he says those are on the list. Those are things that that are expressions of our selfish, sinful desires coming out. 
And then he, says, he concludes the list by saying, and things like these. This is not a comprehensive list. There could be many, many more things. In fact, we're really good at coming up with new terrible things. As, as humans, you know, the, the human race is very creative in coming up with new expressions of our own internal selfish desires. And so what he's saying is this is not a comprehensive list. In fact, he, he points to a couple other things in here. In verse 15, he says, he's speaking specifically to them, these folks in Galatia. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So some of these things that he mentioned on here, of, of divisions and, and strife and jealousy, these were apparently happening in their own community. Um, verse 26, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. So the very things he's warning them about are apparently creeping up within their own community, their own church. And then he makes this statement, and this is such a heavy statement. He says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that is a really heavy statement that he makes. I think it's something that we need to, to hear. We live in a time where, you know, we're, we're after the Protestant Reformation, right? So we have been taught justification by grace through faith, and this is a good message. And for the past 500 years, Western civilization has heard justification by grace through faith alone, right? We do not earn our salvation. We come to our salvation as a free gift, and that is good news, and it is true. Okay, we have songs like Just As I Am, and, and many of us have, have heard the song Just As I Am. I've, I've been in churches where they, they play like 15 verses of that until someone comes forward. Someone must come forward, or we will continue hearing this song. So, you know, that song, the lyrics to that song talk about this amazing good news that no matter who you are or where you are, no matter what kind of sin is is in your life, you can come to God just as you are. God will receive you and accept you in the place that you are, and that is true, and that is good news, and that's much of what Paul's been saying in Galatians up to this point. This is good news, but it gets twisted. And the way it gets twisted is that we come just as we are, and we don't have to like somehow clean up our act in order for God to accept us and let us, let us receive him by faith. We come just as we are, but then it gets twisted to say you get to stay just as you are. Okay, you, you come just as you are, you're a sinner, come to Christ, receive forgiveness, and then now that you've got your get-out-of-jail-free card, now, now you're, you're free to go. And that's not the, the message of the gospel at all. Right? That, that's really, it's, it's not just a cheapened version of the gospel. It's really not the gospel. The gospel is this, that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king, and he is coming back one day, and we're doomed. We're doomed because he is a righteous king, and he expects allegiance to his kingdom. And every last one of us was a rebellious sinner opposed to God. And if it were not for the, the reconciliation that he provides through his own blood at the cross, we're doomed. And yet, he has given us this opportunity to be reconciled to him, to have our sins forgiven, 
to be restored in this relationship, to be adopted as children. I mean, it's just amazing what he has offered to us. But make no mistake, he's still the king, right? And, and there's still an expectation of allegiance to his kingdom. And if he comes back and we are dead set on pursuing our sin as far and as fast as we can in opposition to his kingdom, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would we do that? And, and how does that look? And so he, he makes this statement. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you might think, okay, well, maybe Paul didn't quite mean it. Maybe there's something about the context here. Maybe we could get around it. Maybe this is the only time he said it and there's some, some issue. But no, Paul says this frequently. So 1 Corinthians 6, I'm going to read just a couple passages here. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I love that statement. That's who you guys were, right? Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So that's exactly who they were. They were all of these things. And yet he's able to say, you are not that anymore. Such were, past tense, such were some of you. You know, they were sexually immoral and greedy drunkards. But not anymore. Not anymore. Ephesians 5, verse 5 says, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Or Revelation 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so the point is this. If you pursue sin instead of Christ, it will lead to eternal judgment, eternal punishment by God. And so that leads Paul to the conclusion here in verse 24, where he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There ought to be a difference in our lives if we have turned to Christ. And it's interesting, he, he doesn't say, he doesn't give this as a command, right? This isn't like an imperative of what you should do. He says this as just a statement of fact. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have already done this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So how can he say that? Well, the basis for that is that the Christian life begins with repentance. That's really where the Christian life begins. And so let me just read a few passages. You know, these are, these are things that I feel like this doesn't get emphasized very much and um, needs to. So I want, I want you to hear a few examples here. So John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes along, begins his ministry, 
And in Matthew 3, we read these words. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you know the ministry of John the Baptist, you know that that was what he was doing. He was calling the nation of Israel to repent, to turn back to their God. And he was preparing the way for Jesus. And so everybody needs to get themselves right with God because Jesus is coming. So turn away from your sin, turn to God because he's here. Okay, so let's look at the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You might notice it's very similar to John the Baptist's message. Those are the exact same words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus, when he comes and he preaches, the first word out of his mouth in this is repent. Right? He's calling the nation back to God, calling them to turn away from their sins to turn to God. So then consider Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the context there, that's not how Peter started. Peter started by showing them the need to repent. (laughs) He says, Jesus is the Messiah, and you killed him. That's more or less his message on Acts, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost is, is you killed the Messiah. What do we do? Repent. That's his message. Repent. So turn away from your old thinking, your old way of life. Turn to God and choose to live that way. So it's a, it's a call to turn away from sin and to turn to the Lord to serve him. And what Paul's saying here in Galatians 5 is he's assuming you've already done this. Right? Because you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you've already done, taken this step in your life of crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires, what it says there in Galatians 5.24. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.11, remember we just read that a moment ago. He says, such were some of you. This is who you were, but there's assumed in the Christian life a repentance from sin, a turning away from that that's already happened. Right? So that's, that's where the Christian faith begins. Just as I am, I come to Christ. I recognize my need for a Savior. I accept Him by faith. And part of accepting Him by faith is recognizing I can't live this way anymore. I've got to turn and follow Him. Right? That's, that's what it means to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior. Um, consider how uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a famous German pastor and theologian Consider how he describes this. Um, This is from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. And the first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, Or it may be a death like Luther's, Martin Luther, 
who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Now, you know, maybe, you know, Bonhoeffer, he's a German, they're kind of extreme. You know, maybe, maybe he was just exaggerating. You think Dietrich Bonhoeffer is exaggerating. Um, this is exactly what Jesus said, Luke 9.23. Luke 9.23, he said, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So if you want to follow Jesus, it involves dying to yourself. It involves giving up the flesh and its passions and desires, crucifying those desires. It means no longer gratifying the desires of the flesh. Instead, it means killing them. Right? And there's a tendency, I think, in the Christian life. I think we have so emphasized grace that we have downplayed the seriousness of sin. And that's not a fair treatment of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying we need to kill sin in our lives. That we need to put it to death. And, and I think at times we might think, well, that's a higher level of discipleship. You know, that's like discipleship 2.0 or 3.0. You know, I'll get to that at some point. That's not how Jesus presents it. He says, this is, this is how you come to me. If anyone wants to come after me, here's, here's how you do it. Three-step plan. Okay? You want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Right? And taking up our cross, you know, that, that's that nice little thing you wear on a necklace, right? Well, the, the cross was, was death, right? It was the electric chair. It was, it was crucifixion. It was, it was horrible. And that's what, what Jesus is describing the Christian life. Here's what it looks like to follow me. It looks like, you know, execution. That's, that's what following Jesus looks like. And so he is, he's telling them, you must turn away from that life into another one. Now, we've, we've been going through Galatians, and that new life in Christ is way better than the old life and the slavery and the death that it would bring. Um, but that's the normal Christian life. That's how it gets described. I want to read another passage, Titus 2. Titus 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Praise the Lord training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all, unlaw- from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Do you see all this? I'm trying to paint a picture here. I want you to see that there's an expectation in the Christian life that we have turned away from sin to live a godly life that's zealous for good deeds. And so the gospel is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The gospel is citizenship in a new kingdom. And so that's what, that's what we're seeing here is Jesus is king and we're either with him or against him. And that's hard. And the reason it's hard is because of what Paul said earlier. There's a war going on inside of us. And the war is between the Holy Spirit and the desires of the flesh. And 
it's battling, and it's going against one another, and it causes us to do the things that we don't want to do. And yet that battle is ongoing. And so that's why this is such a hard teaching. That's why we, we come to this and we uh, shy away from it. Next week, we're going to look at the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's the good news. That's the, that's the part. You've got to come back for that part. That's, that's, why, we, that's why this is good news. Uh, we're going to look at what does true freedom look like. We're going to look at how we can have victory over the flesh. But this week, I want us to really hone in on these two statements. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as a result, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so I want you guys to to do a little bit of introspection. We won't do 12 verses of just as I am, don't worry. Um, But I do want you to do a little bit of introspection And ask the question, have you crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? Are you daily putting to death the desires of the flesh? Are you killing them? Or are you kind of like keeping them on life support, dabbling with sin, you know, riding the fence where I'm going to kind of follow Jesus and kind of not follow Jesus? That's, That's not the Christian life at all. What the Christian life is described as is killing the sin that's in your life and moving on. <laughs> you don't need to deal with that anymore. Just get rid of it. That's, what, that's what's being described is, is a repentance that says, I'm done with that and I'm not going back. Um, have you done that? 1 John 1, nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all from all unrighteousness. Anybody who's been through Awana knows that verse <laughs> or just about any other kind of program like that. I, I had a youth pastor that went through the Navigators, and so um, 1 John 1, 9 was one that we learned. We knew that, that verse. It's a good message that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to give you another, another one to cling to, and it's Proverbs twenty eight thirteen says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's pray. Our Father...